Had I been paying attention to my energy level before I decided to teach in 1 Corinthians, I might not have decided to do it. <laughs> um, I had this very naive thought that it's ordinary time. Let's, let's talk about the ordinary church. We got about 16 weeks to cover. Let's do something in Paul. Yeah, we've not done anything in Corinthians. Let's do 1 Corinthians. Little did I know that it would be week after week of controversial topics. So here we go again. <laughs> I think most New Testament scholars would agree with me that in terms of interpretation, this is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. There are phrases in here that we just flat don't understand what they mean. So I just need to say that. Um, we have the greatest scholars in the world who can't be sure about because of what the angels or two or three other things like that. This is a very difficult text. In terms of 1 Corinthians, it's undoubtedly the most difficult text in 1 Corinthians. Gordon Feast, uh, classic commentary on 1 Corinthians, has 40 pages on this and well over 100 footnotes. So here we go. <laughs> um, and we'll see if we can get our heads wrapped around this. So I think I would like to begin by helping us see not only what's at stake here, but the difficulties of it by um, just telling a, a brief story about myself. When I was president of Vineyard Churches, so this probably would have been somewhere in the late 90s, I had to make a decision about what we're going to do with the problem of women in ministry and the various viewpoints that people have about it. And I was president, and it was my job not just to make the decision solo, but to lead us through a process in which we would come out on the other end with you know, some sort of position. And so I have studied this topic probably more than any other topic in the New Testament. I used to have boxes of every book ever written, every article ever written, tapes. I mean, I don't, I don't know where the boxes. I think I gave the boxes all to Vanguard. But, so they're, they're over there in the library if you want to find them. Um, and I just discovered um, that there are men and women much more godly and intelligent than I am that are on both sides of this issue. And I remember sitting at my desk in Anaheim just with sort of deep frustration uh, that, well, what, how, what am I going to do? Like, I can't rise above the greatest scholars in the world and adjudicate, you know, become the judge and say which one's right or wrong, but yet I was the leader and I had to say something. And so here's the first, I think, really big insight that came to me thinking about all this. It's that gender differences are huge and real. And we don't do anybody any favor by trying to pretend those things aren't the case. For one thing, it's put enormous pressure on women in modern Western history to try to live up to the kind of maleness that was expressed in certain sorts of leadership. So while these differences are real and huge and should be celebrated, I want to suggest that they're secondary to a more fundamental reality, and that is that all of us, no matter of what gender, our most fundamental being is found that we are human in the image of God, and that all humans are invited to work with him based on their calling and gifting, not their gender. So are you feeling me so far? We can celebrate that genders are very different, and we should. Acknowledge it and celebrate it. But you're not primarily a gendered person. You're primarily image. God made them, male and female, in his image. So what's most fundamental about it is humanness. 
I, I, I guess I could say that our genderedness is second. You know, I, I'm not, in other words, you hear what I'm saying? It's possible to hold on to the absolute importance of genderedness, but to just pull back from that a little bit and ask about humanness. Because probably what's going wrong in our passage, the, the best that people can tell, is that once again, you have those who are claiming super spiritual knowledge to say that, well, we're no longer gendered. We're like what we would be in the age to come. And therefore, gender distinctions don't matter. And they were expressing this publicly in ways that were disrespectful to the culture and bringing shame on the church. But again, scholars can't even agree on exactly what it is they were doing. But it was bringing shame on the church, and Paul is arguing that they would hold for the symbolic distinctions between the sexes. So whatever it is that men and women were doing with their heads or head coverings, um, it's very hard for us to reach back into that first century culture and to make any kind of intellectually honest one-to-one -one application to what they were doing. Maybe the closest we could come would be something like this. No one would wear a Speedo or a bikini to a formal dinner, right? That's like TMI at a formal dinner, right? Like, no, that's not the way you dress. So something like that is what's going on. Secondly, thinking of my personal journey in this, I have to give a big shout out and thank you to um, the late Ray Anderson, who was a professor of systematic theology at uh, Fuller, who I had some engagement with over the years. And, and I didn't read a lot of his early stuff, but I, I read some of his later stuff. And I have to credit Ray for giving me a narrative way to think my way out of this and to somehow make re a sense of what he calls a redemptive arc in the story told in the Bible. And then just a few years ago, um, a professor of hermeneutics uh, called William Webb uh, wrote a book in which he uses the term redemptive movement interpretation, and I'll say more about that in a moment, that there, if we can't find our way out of this in other ways, I think we can find a way forward in a narratival way. So let me say a bit more about how I think we can read Paul here. I think his concern is not on insisting gender-based hierarchy and therefore the subordination of women. Paul actually affirms the authority of women to pray and prophesy by the Spirit. And prophecy, you know, is not just foretelling the future. Prophecy is essentially um, revealing how, God, how things are from God's image. So, sorry, from his perspective. So it has a kind of teaching, preaching component to it. It's, it's, um, it's like revealing life and what's true and right about it from God's point of view, or oftentimes with the prophets, what's wrong about it. So Paul's affirming that. He's just simply saying you ought to do it properly attired. Like if that's a dinner party, you ought to be properly attired for that so that it doesn't bring shame on the church. So Paul's concern here is this sort of unthinkable modes of dress. And as I said, this is very cultural, very hard to get into. But as I say, it was bringing shame on the church by disregarding these visual cultural expressions of gender differentiation. Now, what's so hard, for instance, about this passage for scholars, especially Pauline scholars, is Paul almost never cares about this kind of stuff. He's so focused on the kingdom and God that he's never focused on like these kind of cultural distinctions. It's very rare. And when he is, he's trying to pull the church into alignment with the kingdom. 
So Paul then, his logic in this passage is he tries to undo what's going wrong by appealing to creation and saying, man came from the dust, woman came from man, but from then on, both male and female come from the woman and that they each therefore cannot exist without the other. And so Paul's argument here is something like that it's together males and females form the one humanity. And so I think we should see in Paul's imagination the best we can, him foreseeing a complete interdependence or mutual dependency, not subordination. Now I need to stop here and say that again. Whatever the creation story means, it does not mean to imply a rigid subordination. Now, one of the ways that late scholars, and I don't know when to date this, but uh, I don't know when to date it, but a lot of scholars have tried to find their way out of this, and that sounds negative, find a way to understand this by appealing to the Trinity. And, and that in the same way you do not have subordination in the Trinity, you have a oneness amongst three people. That, that means that us being created in the image of God do not have most fundamental to us subordination, but interdependence. And that helps you then read the passages of scripture where Christ seems to be submitting himself to the Father, that that's a functional thing, not, sorry for the big word, ontological thing. That's not a statement about the being of God. That's a statement about how God is functioning in history. So when Paul then seeks to explain that the woman is the glory of man, that simply means that she was created for man's sake, not that she exists as a subordinate person for the man's purposes, for the man's aims and the man's will. Paul would want to say that both genders exist for God, for his purposes and his aims, and that both genders then are of equal value, worth, and dignity. Now I think Eugene is very helpful here in the message where he gets this paragraph saying, don't, by the way, read too much into the differences between men and women. Neither man nor woman can go it alone or claim, claim priority. The first woman came from man, true. But ever since then, every man comes from a woman. And since virtually everything comes from God anyway, let's keep, sorry, let's quit going through these who's first routines. Now, let's see if we can cut to the chase, because I, I know what the chase is. You know, what does this mean for church? And think about some ways of thinking about women in church and in ministry. I can't remember how long ago this book was written, but somebody wrote a book on why I changed my mind about women in ministry. I want to say it's four or five years now. And Dallas was asked, Dallas Willard was asked to write the foreword to it. And so as a way to kind of think our way into this, I, I wouldn't normally read this much, but I want to read just a couple of paragraphs from Dallas's introduction to this book because they asked him to contribute to it, and Dallas said, I can't because I didn't change my mind about it. Like, I've, I've always thought this way, but I'll write the foreword. So here's what he says. All through my young life, from Mrs. Roy Rowan at the First Baptist Church of Buffalo, Missouri, to Mrs. Flood and others at Shiloh Baptist Church in Rover, Missouri, those who had taught me most at church were women. Actually, I knew that in many cases there would be no church at all if it hadn't been for women. And beyond church, life in my environment was mainly anchored in strong and intelligent women 
who, often with little or nothing in the way of credentials, simply stood for what was good and right and directed others in the way of Christ. As I grew older and began to seriously study the Bible in the way of Christ, I learned three things. Here's his things. First, those gifted by God for any ministry should serve in the capacities enabled by their gift. There is no suggestion whatsoever in Scripture that the gifts of the Spirit are distributed amongst gender lines. I remember when I was studying this, I used to frequently go up to USC and have lunch with Dallas, and I remember, you know, angsting with him about this, and him just you know, so he would pat me on the arm and say, now, Todd, this is really pretty straightforward. Just let the gifted express their gifts. This is really not that hard. And he was just, you know, like, he was inviting me to think about this in terms of pneumatology, in terms of the person and work of the Spirit, not first and foremost ecclesiastically. Do you see the great move there? The great move is don't think your way into this through historic denominations and people's positions, as important as that is. But what if you just pan back a little bit and, and, and think about it more in terms of spiritual gifts and just let the gifted make whatever place their gifts make for them. Second, and I completely agree with this and would have said it myself if Dallas hadn't, it is misguided and unhelpful to try to deal with this problem by what we know of as civil rights. That is such an incredibly low bar. It's just not going to get us anywhere. Or in terms of equality with men in the roles that have been set out only for men. It's not a woman's rights it's not a woman's equality with men that gives them a right to serve. They don't have the right to serve. Ladies, you have the obligation to serve according to the gifts that God has given you to make a difference for what's good and right in this world based on your temperament, your personality, your background, your calling, your gifting. That doesn't give you a right. That Nobody has the right to serve God. It's an obligation we all have, male or female, and if you ladies can just make that switch if you haven't already, it is the path not only to like liberation as we think of it, but it's the path to goodness. It's the path to all that you can contribute to this incredibly broken world. So you not only have the right, but I think most profoundly you have the duty as all of us to love God and love your neighbor according to your gifts. Third, Dallas says, the exclusion of women from official ministry positions leaves women generally with the impression that there's something wrong with them. And this is what I think modern, more modern women have been fighting against. This is, I think, a, a lot of both in the secular liberation movements and in the more academic intellectual parts of it in our seminaries around America. This is what I think a lot of women have been pushing back on. Well, what's wrong with us? There must be something fundamentally wrong. If God indeed does include women from leadership in the church, Dallas writes, there must be some reason he does. So what exactly is it about a woman that God sees them and says they won't do? Now, I got to tell you, there are people in especially the more higher liturgical world who have an answer to that. But most people, it's like, well, I don't know. What does this mean? And what Dallas wants to say is what we lose by excluding the distinctively feminine from official ministries of teaching and preaching is a loss that is one of the few fundamental factors which account for the astonishing weakness of the church in the contemporary context. 
Okay, you might say, but none of that deals directly with the scriptural prohibitions. I read a lot of what uh, Dennis has written on this topic this week. And, you know, again, we can't do it in a brief sermon, but, you know, there are these things like Timothy, I don't permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. Or a few chapters later, 1 Corinthians 14, women should be silent and the church is not allowed to speak and must be in submission. What do we do with that? Right? I mean, a lot of people would want to say, well, a plain reading of the scriptures would say that not only can a woman not lead, but she can't even speak in church. She has to be silent and in submission. So what do we do with that? You know, I was just talking about this sort of Trinitarian and spirit way of thinking our way into this. Paul seems to be saying something different. And so, I mean, I can remember this like it was yesterday, sitting at my desk in Anaheim and trying my best to understand the lexical issues or the dictionary issues. Do you know our best Greek scholars in the world can't even agree on what kephale, headship, means? They can't agree on what athautain, for authority, means. And I, I would sit there day after day after day reading this stuff and thinking, I can't judge this. This just feels like a toss-up. Or the hermeneutical issues. Hermeneutics is just simply like a basis or the science of interpretation. Like, how do you come to a text? People can't even agree on that. Is Paul doing ad hoc sort of missionary theology on the run? Or is he saying something that's not culturally bound, but something that is for all time and all places and all people? Or sorry for all the big words, or the exegetical issues, and that just simply means how do we deal with the text that's in front of us? And I read and read and read and thought my best thoughts and prayed my best prayers and just realized those things all feel like a toss up to me, so what do I do? And this is when I discovered Ray Anderson in this sort of redemptive narrative I'll say this quickly, that goes like this. And I want you to picture a trajectory, a redemptive trajectory that this creates. So first of all, in the creation covenant before the fall, everybody, in quotes, would agree that that's completely mutual. Men and women, completely mutual, serving God. Then there are biblical precedents. There are women leaders in the Old Testament in this highly patriarchal culture, like Deborah, who was a prophet and a judge, therefore a senior leader. Miriam was a prophet who led worship. Hilda helped give us what we now think of as the Old Testament. There are women leaders that Paul commends in the New Testament, like Priscilla and Junia and Julia and Phoebe, who's a deacon. Women were last at the cross and first at the tomb and were often the most loyal followers of Jesus. So I think the most important thing to say here is that the inclusion of women in leadership among God's people is not a new or novel or liberal concept. It's actually biblical. And then there are historical precedents. And here is a little paragraph in praise to women in the church. We read in Luke 8 this morning that women loved and served and followed Jesus and use their considerable means to provide for the company of the apostles. For 2,000 years, the majority of church attenders and active participants in the church have been women. Women have been crucial in the church from the beginning, from the contemporaries of Jesus to subsequent saints and theologians and doctors of the church like St. Teresa of Avila, St. Catherine of Siena. Women have been missionaries, abbesses, nuns, mystic, founders of religious institutions and martyrs. Women over the years have established schools, hospitals, nursing homes, and monastic communities. So you can see that there's a trajectory here, moving from creation 
through the Old Testament and the New Testament, and now coming to church history, as we have, now just think of the new heavens and the new earth, where again you have total mutuality. So you have mutuality before the fall, mutuality in the new heavens and the new earth, a string of things that connect us there, so that this creates then a developmental trajectory and puts at the center of this sort of controversy the supremacy of God and the Holy Spirit, who I would want to say calls and gifts both men and women. So as I've thought about the work we've been doing here uh, in 1 Corinthians, as I said, I just wasn't thinking the moment I had that inspiration that this was going to lead me week after week <laughs> into these controversial topics. So one thing maybe the Spirit is doing amongst us as we wrestle with these things is to teach us to disagree with respect. I mean, in a sense, I made this decision um, you know, years ago now, almost 20 years ago. But for those whole 20 years, I would have been happy to look anybody in the eye and say, I know I could be wrong. And I honestly mean that. But I was a leader. I had to act. I couldn't bury my head in the sand. And I am a leader. And I have other bishops around America who would not agree with my position. There are bishops who would say, well, a woman can be a priest, but she can't be a rector. There'd be bishops who would say, well, a woman can be a deacon, but not a priest. I mean, people, people try, trying to think their way through kephale, headship, they cut this baby in all different sorts of places. Well, for me, wanting to say that we're most prominently human first, I would want to say I, I can't see where that is. Where, where, do we, where do we cut a woman off and why? But I could be wrong. And so look at me. I don't primarily hold this position. This position is held in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not hold records of what you perceive to be other people's wrongs. So I don't primarily hold any position. I want to be held in the reality of God and his kingdom and love. But as a leader, I have to have positions. And as thoughtful people, I think you would want to have positions. Well, as we come to our quiet moment we usually are in these moments doing stuff that's kind of reflective. But this morning, I want us to do something a little different and ask you to bow your heads and, and join me in prayer. And I want to give you just a few minutes of silence here to pray for the church. This whole church that just in a moment, we're, gonna, we're going to talk about us believing in the one holy, universal, and apostolic church. And I want to invite you this morning to hold that church before your mind and pray. Pray that we can find a way forward in this and other controversial elements of church life that honors women and honors those who think differently on this matter, such that, as Paul said, we would regard them as higher are more important than ourselves. So I want you to pray for the church.
Pray that we could find a way forward that both honors women and honors those who think differently and come to regard everybody as of more importance than ourselves.